Let's pray together, church. Father, we recognize that without your Holy Spirit's enabling, without your Holy Spirit's inspiring, Lord, this time that will ensue will be of no value. Lord, for unless you build a house, we labor in vain. Unless you move, God, we, we, we do nothing. We accomplish nothing. Lord, would you pour out showers of blessing, we pray, through your word, by your spirit. God, would we hear you speak? Would we be reminded of truth we know? God, but also enabled to see glory that we might glory in the cross and what's been accomplished for us. Father, we ask that you would bless all that follows and bring glory to your name. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, church, if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to Galatians 5, 16. Galatians Chapter 5 and verse 16. This morning we arrive at the section of Scripture that if you have an NIV, the translators determined to title Life by the Spirit. Life by the Spirit. And historically, Baptists have not prioritized pneumatology or the study of the Holy Spirit. It's a fact evidenced by the limited references to the Spirit in early Baptist writings as compared to those regarding Christ and the gospel. And so in the 17th century, when Baptists were first distinguishing themselves theologically, their principal concerns reflected subjects such as baptism, surprise, surprise, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, so soteriology, as well as Christ's full humanity and full divinity, so concerns of Christology. Oddly enough, there were no controversies regarding the spirit, the pneumatological concerns. And therefore, when one looks back over the preaching and teaching of early Baptist heroes that we might point to, such as Andrew Fuller, or the first missionary, William Carey, or the London-based theologian John Gill, when we look back over their teaching and preaching, there's a paucity of emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Now it's not that they didn't believe in the Spirit or the necessity of His power for success in the Christian life. It just wasn't their primary concern. And this lack of emphasis can still be seen today to some degree. If you consider and examine the Baptist hymnal and you note that of the 666 songs contained therein, less than 20 fall under the title Holy Spirit. Less than 20. And that's a striking, some might say disconcerting imbalance when weighed against the words that we're going to be reading this morning from Galatians chapter 5 and beginning in verse 16. Well, if you found our text, I invite you to follow along as I read. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 16, the Apostle Paul writes these words. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, 
impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. And may God bless the public reading of his word. For the apostle, having spent the better part of his letter to this point, emphasizing his readers standing before God due to the gospel which they'd heard, but apparently abandoned for what was no gospel at all, Paul now shifts his emphasis to ethics, not exclusively, as if the practical living out of the gospel he's been expounding could be disassociated from the gospel itself, but there's a clear shift in Paul's thinking from standing before God to living for God. That's seen in the apostles' opening phrase there, so I say, live by the Spirit. What does Paul mean, live by the Spirit? And in Emmanuel, Christians... As fellow travelers on life's journey, I believe understanding Paul's statement here is of paramount importance. Because if we somehow get this wrong, if we somehow mistake this and find our lives marked by the acts of the sinful nature, as Paul describes them there, verse 19, then we can expect his judgment offered, verse 21, to be ours. That those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And church, this is huge. This is huge. We're not talking about a timeout at the end of a game where those who fail to measure up will spend some time paying penance before they're allowed to join the rest of the team. No, what Paul is saying here is that if we claim to be Christians, but our lives display the actions noted here, so sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, the list goes on. If, if our lives reveal these behaviors, then we aren't God's children. We aren't heirs of the Father, as Paul's previously described Christ's followers. Rather, we're slaves who will suffer for eternity apart from God's presence. So what does the apostle mean when he says, live by the Spirit, as the NIV renders that phrase? If you have a ESV translation, it captures Paul's exhortation as walk by the Spirit, as does the Holman and the King James, if you like the King James. And I, I think that these translations, that is the ESV, the Holman, and the King James, I believe these translations work better here because while the term in its original depicts conduct in general and not so much the act of movement, saying one foot placed in front of the other, there's a second word given later in our text, rendered live by the NIV. That's in verse 25. And they're not the same in the original. And we're going to comment on this later. And we'll comment also on its significance when we get there. But suffice to say, the NIV's use of live in both instances, that's in verse 16 and later verse 25, it blurs a point of distinction that I believe merits attention as regards application. 
So Paul urges his readers to live, or walk, we'll say, to walk by the Spirit, where the present tense employed here implies a continuous action. It would be more clearly conveyed if we were to say, be always walking, or, or be a person characterized by walking by the Spirit. And you'll notice the preposition is by. It's not in. It's by, which I believe suggests two things. First of all, means. It suggests means, as in the attribution of means, like we would see in the case of, say, uh, in the Old Testament, Elijah, the prophet, the prophet of God, who following his battle with Baal's prophets on Mount Carmel was threatened by Jezebel. And as you recall, he wimped out, didn't he? He fled to Horeb, where he fell asleep on his way. And a little while later, an angel woke him, commanded him to eat, which he did before he fell back asleep. And then this happened a second time before we read in 1 Kings 19.8. So he got up, ate and drank, strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and nights until he reached toward the mountain of God. And so for Paul, our lives are to be conducted by the Spirit. That is by the enabling of the Spirit, by the empowering of the Spirit. So by here, this preposition suggests means, and second, direction, as in where we are to walk. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, following Jesus' temptation, we read, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert. So Jesus is led by the Spirit. Jesus' walking was by the Spirit as He was directed where to go. And so, church, should our walking be. But why? Why? You know, some of us this morning might be wondering, well, why? Why should we walk continuously by the Spirit? And the answer, according to Paul, is so you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. You will not. you notice the certainty of victory conveyed for us there? It's not, it's you will not. It's not you might not. Certainty, if you walk by the Spirit, allowing Christ's Spirit, the, the Spirit by which we cry out, as Paul says, Father, Abba, Father, that Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, if we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the sinful nature's desires. Friends, what a glorious promise to know that we are assured victory over the things that our sinful nature craves. And we haven't reached the expressions of the sinful nature given us verses 19, 20, 21. But I know we can all attest to the flesh's vices, be they visual men, be they nutritional, familial, whatever. We all battle with desire, don't we? And we all have unique ways of coping, of coping or, or not, don't we? You know, some use accountability. Some choose isolation. Some go for the patch method. Others go cold turkey. Some just don't go at all, do they? They languish in their passion. It's like those men that frequent the Chipotles down there near the college. Uh, clearly unemployed, apparently homeless. These men have simply chosen, it would appear, to give in. Isn't it awesome to read God's promise? That if we live by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of our sinful natures. But why? Right? I mean, we, it's all well and good for the apostle to say we won't, but why? What's the mechanism driving this promise? And I believe Paul gives us the answer in verse 17 when he writes, For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. In other words, these two subjects, sinful nature 
and spirit are complete opposites. So if your flesh desires something, then you can be certain the spirit desires its opposite. It's like poles on a magnet. They're just totally opposition. They're opposing one another. You can't be led by the spirit and somehow miss God's mark. Neither can you be led by the flesh and miraculously end up pleasing God. As the writer of Hebrews tells us, without what? Faith. It's impossible to please God. And as we saw together, Paul explained in chapter 3, through faith in Christ Jesus, we're made sons and daughters of God. We're heirs, and therefore, we're no longer slaves to sin and to death. And so, neither living by the Spirit nor succumbing to the flesh will result in their opposites. In fact, these two entities, as Paul describes them, are in such conflict, Paul's words, that you don't do what you want, where I take this to mean not that we're mere passive observers to the ongoings in our lives, but that in our weakness, we can't will our own way. And right here, let me explain what I believe Paul means by flesh as he's used this term several times so that we don't get the sense that our bodies are distinct from our beings, our our spiritual selves, that our bodies are somehow distinct and therefore we can see the source of our sin as something other than ourselves, and therefore we're not culpable for our depravity. Let me explain what I believe Paul sees the flesh as being. For the apostle, the flesh, as so referenced, is our old self. It's that old ego, which, as one pastor theologian explains, doesn't delight to yield to any authority or depend on any mercy. It, this self, craves the sensation of self-generated power. And it loves the praise of people. So our our flesh, as Paul describes it, is our sin-marred self, which will not and indeed cannot submit to God, apart from the gospel's grace and power, which we experience through faith in Jesus. At which point, as we saw back in chapter 2, verse 19, at that point we were crucified with Christ. Now we no longer live but what? Christ lives in us. And so what happens when we come to life in Christ is that that old self, the flesh, as Paul's described it, dies. And the spirit now takes its place. So church, we don't achieve autonomy in salvation. We don't achieve autonomy in salvation. Rather, we come under new lordship. That's Christ's. And thus, when Paul writes, you do not do what you want, what I believe he's saying is that you aren't other than your masters. And therefore, you'll either want what the Spirit wants or you're going to want what the flesh wants. But, as Paul begins there in verse 18, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Meaning, meaning what he's describing here isn't some equal battle in our lives in which we have these two antithetical entities duking it out for supremacy. Rather, as one commentator notes, Paul now stresses that the Spirit is the victor for the Christian. Done. So the Galatians had been baptized with Christ. They were clothed with Christ, and therefore they belonged to a new covenant era people for whom the law of Moses was no longer binding. And the apostle was desperate for his readers to reject the agitator's message because they were under the Spirit's powerful influence and direction. They had no need for self-effort to fulfill the law that God might be pleased with them and accept them. Do you know this freedom this morning, friends? Are you under the Spirit? 
as Paul's described it? Have you been set free from God's or by God's grace through faith in Jesus? Or are you still living under the law where it's in your flesh that you're attempting to do things that will make you moral? You're trying not to lie, not to gossip, to look at porn, because you, you want to be good enough. You want to be, you want to merit God's blessing. You're trying your very best not to sin, but what you're experiencing is the very reality of which Paul is writing. You can't seem to help but gratify the cravings of your heart. Or you might hold them off for a while, and there may be periods of greater success than others. You might stave off their rumblings for a season, but like your stomach after you skip a meal, it starts to growl with increasing frequency and intensity, so too does your flesh, yourself. Your need for that which satisfied only grows until you can't help yourself, and in many ways you could say, I don't do what I want to do, but I do end up doing it, don't I? Church, the glory of God in the gospel's light opens our eyes to that which alone satisfies fully and eternally, who is Jesus. And thus, we who live by the Spirit, we're not forcing ourselves by our strength to do anything against our nature because we've been given a new one, haven't we? As Paul told the church in Corinth, if anyone is in Christ, he's a what? New creature. The old is gone. It's not lingering. It's gone. There's a new one that's come. So we have new natures marked by New fruit that radically contrasts the old, as Paul demonstrates now in verses 19 through 23, where he sets flesh works against spirit fruit. Flesh works against spirit fruit. So would you look with me now at how Paul describes the expressions of the sinful nature in verse 19? In verse 19, Paul writes, the acts of the sinful nature are... That's how our NIV reads, if you have the NIV. But as we've already noted regarding the NIV's use of live, as we pointed out, instead of walk, this is another instance in which I believe if you have an ESV translation or you use the Holman, the King James, they give a clearer picture, in my opinion, of what Paul intends as they translate the original term as works of the flesh. And that term acts, as given by our NIV, contain, or conveys, at least to me, it conveys the idea of actions which many of these are, as we'll see in just a moment. But some, such as the emotions of hatred, discord, jealousy, for example, they aren't what we would immediately view as actions, are they? Now, they certainly issue forth in actions, but in and of themselves, they're less clearly so. Thus, I think that the term work, as given by the ESV, the Holman, the King James, I believe that the work here is better and not merely for the clarity that it provides regarding the sinful nature's expression but more importantly by what it reveals when we set works against the spirit's fruit so called and so to this point let's ask the question why then does paul set flesh works against spirit fruit and i, I love the clarity and honesty of one pastor theologian as he provides or confessed rather he said, up until recently, I would have said, because work implies effort, and fruit implies effortlessness. And God's will, we know, is that we experience love, joy, peace effortlessly. But then he continues, I noticed that many of the works 
of the flesh are just as effortless for a natural person or an unsaved person as the fruit of the Spirit is for a spiritual person or a follower of Jesus. For example, anger. You don't have to work to get angry, do you? <laughs> you don't have to work at all. You cross a natural man and blood flows, just like when you cut a guy on the arm. It happens. Or you take envy. We don't have to work at becoming envious, do we? Envy is just, it blisters up like old paint when you put paint thinners on it. It just happens. So then, in what sense then does Paul use works here to describe the acts of the sinful nature? And I believe the answer is, is, is to reveal how these behaviors, Paul's describing, how these behaviors display a heart that considers itself a creditor and everyone else a debtor. In other words, the flesh is convinced, our sinful self is convinced of its own merit. And it expects God and every other human being and nature to pay dues by giving it the satisfaction that it desires, it demands. And when these payments of satisfaction aren't made, our sinful self, our flesh, reacts in the way that it does not to earn anything, but rather because we feel as if we've already earned it, we just haven't been given it, have we? And so just as one biblical illustration to this point, consider King David's horrible moral failure with Uriah's wife Bathsheba. It's recorded, I'm sure many of you know, 2 Samuel chapter 11. But we're told in the chapters preceding how David scored all these victories, hasn't he? Victory after victory over his enemies. In fact, the final verse of chapter 10 details how the Arameans were afraid to help the Ammonites. So two enemies fearful of assisting one another. Why? Because of David's military might. And so standing atop all of this success, we read in verse 1 of chapter 11 that in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, his commander, sent him out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. So rather than doing that which was his God-given responsibility, David remained home, walking on his terrace. He sees this beautiful woman bathing, summons her, has sex with her. Then upon discovery that she's pregnant, he sends for her husband in this failed attempt to cover the scandal. But ultimately, he has the man murdered. It's as shocking a story as one could read, made even more so considering that it involves the man, so-called, after God's own heart. Where the point for us this morning, church, is that in the king's flesh, he viewed this as his right. His right to get what he took. He was the king. He was the victorious. No one could resist him. No one could deny him. David saw nothing wrong in his work of the flesh. It wasn't until confronted by God's Spirit through the words of God's prophet, Nathan, that things changed. And friends, aren't we all familiar with the heart behind such work, so-called? How often do we justify our behavior, be it in action, a thought, an emotion, or, or both, all three, by logic? And the logic is, I don't deserve this treatment. I'm me. I'm a king. I'm a queen. I am to be celebrated and submitted to. I can't be expected to answer to anyone but myself. Who are you to question me and why? Why haven't you provided me with what I asked for, what I deserve? Can't we all relate to such self-righteousness? And, and just in case you're struggling this morning with specifics, Paul gives us this list, doesn't he? It's not exhaustive. 
by any means, but it's sure a start. It's a start that one, the majority of scholars believe can be divided into four different parts, where the first section that Paul gives us addresses sexual sins, as evidenced in sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery or sensuality. That's simply wild living of a, of a sexual nature. And then in the second part, which pertains to pagan religions, we see referenced idolatry and, and witchcraft. The third section involves or deals with relational sin, and this is by far the lengthiest, involving in total eight different expressions or, or works of our flesh, namely hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. And I'd be surprised if any of us needed to raise a hand and ask for explanation here. We're all quite familiar with such relational failings, which is why I believe Paul provides us with so many examples. He had many to choose from before he finishes his list off. So this is the last section by dealing with what one commentator, Douglas Moo, defines as dissipated or squandered living, marked by two things, drunkenness and orgies, a life wasted as marked by drunkenness and orgies. And as I said, this list isn't exhaustive. The apostle even offers this proviso come conclusion following orgies when he says, and the like, as in drunkenness, orgies, and the like. You can imagine an ellipsis there if you want to, just to ensure that his original readers don't do what we so often do and say, well, if this is the list, right? This is the list of works of the sinful nature, and if anything's not on this list, well, then it must be okay. And we can't pretend like we don't do this. Parents of teenagers, you know, I'm certain you've had conversations with them regarding things like dating, use of the car, matters involving growing independence, and where they want to know how far is too far. What can't I do? They're not so much concerned with obedience, per se. What they want to know, as do we all, is what can I get away with? And we can point fingers at those of us, or those of us who have teenagers can point fingers, and all of you who, who are here can point fingers. But as we do point those fingers at our teenagers, we have to realize we've got three pointing right back at ourselves, don't we? Because are we any different, parents? The basic point that I believe we need to heed here, church, is that regardless of how much we want to get away with, as Paul says, these acts are obvious or evident, meaning it doesn't matter how you want to spin it, sex outside of God's boundary for marriage is sin, anger, jealousy, envy. You can't excuse them or, or justify them. Drunkenness can't be blamed on circumstance. Well, I just happened to be at a party. It wasn't my fault. Or proclivity to the Bible. It's not me, it's my genes. And therefore, as we've seen together, while the apostle insists that our inheritance in God's kingdom is secured for us apart from the law by our faith and through the Spirit's provision in the gospel, it will not come to those who manifest the works of of the flesh in their lives. I'm going to say that again. It will not come, friends. It will not come to those who continue to manifest the works of the flesh in their lives. And this is a fact not exclusive to the church in Galatia. Paul addressed this very same thing in Romans chapter 8, verse 12, when he wrote this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it, for if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And keeping in mind the present tense of the living, Paul's describing what the apostle is saying is that you can't be living continuously in sin. Or you can't be a person whose life is characterized by sin and expect to inherit God's kingdom. Why? Because you've been crucified with Christ. And you've been raised with the Spirit. And if you live by the Spirit, what did Paul say? You will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Instead, you're going to produce fruit. The fruit of the Spirit. And I'm sure that we all know the fruit of the Spirit this morning. So don't sing the song. But would you say it with me? Galatians 5.22 The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. For Paul, the mindset of fruit contrasts that of works because as John Piper writes, they know, now that they reference is those who are producing the fruit. So those fruit producers know they are worthy only of condemnation. They know that the only pay they can earn is the wrath of God and therefore they've turned away from self-reliance and they look only to Christ and to the mercy of Christ who loved us as Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20 and gave himself for us. They don't expect anyone to be their debtor because of their worth. Any satisfaction will be a free gift of grace. They bank on the mercy of God and entrust themselves to his spirit for help. And then out of that mentality of faith grows not works, but fruit. Where works depend on us, fruit depends on God. And church, I would imagine that we can all relate, we who follow Christ, we can all relate to this effortless fruit production as evidenced in our lives when following God's grace and opening of our eyes to his glory in Jesus. When we saw this and had come to this realization for the first time, we found we're sinful. The gospel opened our eyes and we realized we're undeserving of anything good. And in that moment, in all of those which have followed since, we have found ourselves inexplicably drawn to gather with God's people, to hear and study God's word, where we're filled with joy as new truths are revealed, despite the fact that we barely slept at a men's retreat. We walked away filled with joy. Who would pay for that experience? We did, and we walked away thrilled that we did. That makes no sense. Or where our hearts find peace. Despite our lives' madness, and there are many this morning whose lives are crazy. And yet when I speak with you, I see peace. Peace that's not absent from strife, but rather peace in the midst of. Or our minds discover patience that we never knew we possessed. Because we didn't, did we? God grew it. And he grew it along with self-control. And kindness, both of which foreign previously to our person. So all of these things, Paul reminds us, come without any law's prohibition. And, and in light of the fact that the entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself, I believe what the apostle is saying here is that the Spirit produces fruit in the lives of believers and thereby provides for all that the law requires. In other words... The Spirit creates in us 
that which Christ accomplished fully for us. The Holy Spirit of God creates in us that which Christ accomplished fully for us when he died on a cross. Friends, your life marked by spirit fruit. Do you find this law-fulfilling produce simply appearing as you faithfully follow Christ? Or do you feel more like my wife in her efforts to grow grass or anything green in our backyard? Frustrated. Oh, you've worked hard. You've tried. You've thrown out all kinds of fertilizer. You even bought a rabbit to help. And you've got seed that you've planted. But all you can accomplish is weeds. If this is you this morning, and in all of your efforts to succeed have resulted in nothing but disappointment, hear what I believe is Paul's closing point in chapter 5. What you're attempting to do in your strength What you're attempting to do is impossible. It's impossible in God's economy. Because in God's economy, living, which is what you're after, means dying. Paul expresses it. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. So referencing the glorious gospel work that we looked at together back in chapter 2 verse 20 here the apostle states that when we become children of God or we're born again to use Jesus's metaphor given when he spoke to Nicodemus recorded in John 3 when we're born again we don't simply add Christ to our current circumstances he he isn't an addition to our firm's board of directors and as God's son well of course now he's the majority shareholder no He becomes the sole proprietor, friends. And therefore, as Paul continues, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let's not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Now, you recall at the very beginning when we examined verse 16, I mentioned how the NIV translates two different words as live. You know, the live we saw, verse 16, we said was better rendered by the ESV, the Holman, the King James, better rendered as walk as it revealed both the means and the direction provided us by the Spirit as we seek to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Here, verse 25, we have the second use of this term. Only here, it literally means to be drawn up in a line. It was typically used in military contexts to mean stay in line with. Battalion, you're getting lined up. Get it in line. Stay in line. And so as theologian J.I. Packer explains what Paul means by living by the Spirit here, what he means is proceed under another's direction and control. And the manner in which the apostle expresses this living or this proceeding, I think is telling. I believe it's telling. Because our NIV reads since, as in since we live by the Spirit. But the ESV and the King James offer if, if we live by. And I think off if and, and since both work, but I personally prefer if because I think it clearly, more clearly at least, captures the conditional sense of Paul's statement. Meaning this, I don't think the apostle wanted his original readers, the Galatians, to simply sit back having read his words of exhortation and contentedly think, yeah, we're living by the Spirit. This is, this is exactly what's true of us. I think 
I think Paul wanted them to ask themselves daily, is this true of me? Am I actually keeping in line with the Spirit? Am I standing with those shoulder to shoulder with me, followers of Jesus? Are we standing in line with the Spirit of God? Am I loving my neighbor? Am I speaking the truth in love? Am I humbly serving others? Or am I becoming conceited? Am I provoking and am I envying others? Are you keeping in line with the Spirit where His steps are marked out for us in God's Word? Or is your life more closely characterized by the works of the sinful nature that Paul has given us? Church, as we seek to follow Jesus, to keep in step with the Spirit or to be led by the Spirit. No, no, this is an active pursuing of God's holiness characterized by the Spirit's fruit in which we seek by the Spirit's enabling to love as God loved us, to be kind, gentle, patient, self-controlled. At the same time, we must daily put to death the remnants of our flesh, being watchful over ourselves, but then also those, our fellow travelers, that we might not allow pride and envy to mar the fellowship of Christ's body. Church, may the, the words of 18th century hymn writer Robert Robinson be on our lips and in our hearts. Owe to grace, how great a debtor. Daily, daily, I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above you pray with me as we close? God, you are our Savior, our sustainer. Holy Spirit, you are our deposit, guaranteeing an inheritance that is ours. And you have promised that when we have died to ourselves, been crucified with Christ, our sinful nature no longer has control over us. We have been given victory in Jesus. Father, thank you for these promises. Father, thank you for how clearly you lay out before us how we are to go about this, not in our own strength, but in yours. God, we do have hearts that wander. We are prone to leave the God we love. Therefore, we rest in your enabling power, recognizing that the works that we go about, the strength for accomplishment of those works doesn't come from us. It comes from you. Father, we don't sit back and watch. We actively engage, but in the strength that you provide. And Lord, if there's one this morning who, as we've heard your word clarify spirit, fruit, and flesh work, God, they've found themselves more distinguished by the works of the flesh. And their heart desires freedom from that legality, binding. God, would you, by your grace, open eyes and bring life through your gospel as only you can do. 
And God, would you grow us, your people, so that we might keep in step with your spirit, that we might live out our faith, loving one another, displaying the fruit that your spirit provides so that the world that watches can say, these are Christ's, because that which they've produced came not from them, but from him, to his glory. And we pray these things, God, in your name. Amen.